The Lord is truly our salvation. Amen. Amen. I always depend upon Miss Helene to say amen. Amen. Well, let me pray for us as we as we get started this morning, continuing in our series. Heavenly Father, we thank you again and praise you for the opportunity to gather, for the opportunity to hear your word preached, to sing, to love you through worship. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, again, welcome this morning. just want to thank you for allowing me to take the time over the last three weeks to recharge and reflect upon ministry. I've truly enjoyed having the three men, uh, Ian, Joshua, and Philip, come and minister the Word to us. Today, as I said, we're wrapping up this series on the Word of God. Now, this Today's sermon will, by way of warning, will be mostly review and partly application. It may be uh, toward the end before we actually get to your notes that I gave you in the in the uh, bulletin. So just hang with me this morning. I am praying, pray hard for me that I would be able to be uh, efficient up here because I have a lot to say. Uh, here at Grace Bible Church, we are committed to the four pillars of ministry. We're committed to the exaltation of God, to the exposition of Scripture, to the equipping of the saints, and to evangelism of the lost. Specifically, we are committed this morning, I want to point out that we're committed to the verse-by-verse exposition of God's Word. But we also understand the need to equip God's people. Therefore, we periodically step back and focus on a particular doctrine. Now, thinking back over the history of GBC, some of you have been here the whole time. Uh, Some of you have not, but we've done this on a few occasions. Uh, We completed a series early on on the church. We did another series on church membership. We also completed a series on baptism and the Lord's table and eldership and now this series on the Word of God. Next Sunday, I want to give a little plug for next Sunday, we'll be returning again to our exposition of Ephesians. Uh, As I said earlier, I plan to do a a review and and we'll get back to speed and we'll jump right in 411 because we are committed as a pillar to the exposition of Scripture. And I hope you are as excited as I am about getting back into that uh, great, incredible epistle to the church of Ephesus. But we have a little business, or a lot of business, we'll see how this goes before we do that. Now you may be wondering, you may be wondering why we would take six weeks out of our schedule to preach a topical series when we are committed to the exposition of Scripture to preach a topical series about the nature of the Word of God. Now, I believe in our, or we believe in our current culture, it is more crucial than ever for us to have strong convictions and to be able to defend them. So we have these convictions, and my hope is that that you will have the same convictions and that you will be able to defend them. At Grace Bible Church, we're convinced of the truth of 2 Timothy 3.16, that all Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Now, as you know, this verse is critical to our understanding of the Word of God. Each of the men who have come, including myself, and who have preached as a part of this series, have referenced that particular verse time and again, and today will not be any different. But there's another truth that keeps bubbling to the surface. We also believe that Christ's divine power has granted us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and excellence. That's 1 Peter 1.3. We believe that the conduit by which this true knowledge of Christ comes to us is through the Word of God. The Scriptures, the the Old and New Testaments, are the conduit by which we are granted this true knowledge of Christ. This is true no matter your age or your station in life. 
In the words of Charles Spurgeon, he says this, Nobody ever outgrows Scripture. The book widens and deepens with our years. And some of you saints, uh, Miss Elaine is saying amen. Uh, she's uh, definitely been in the Scriptures longer than most of us have been alive. This is precisely the reason that Paul admonished the church at Colossae to let the word of Christ rule in your hearts. That's Colossians 3.16. I hope that through this series that you have learned and, and become convinced of these things. Beloved, the word of God rightly understood, the word of God rightly understood is the lifeblood of the Christian. It's the lifeblood of the church. Now let me illustrate this, the importance of this, with, an, with a story. An unfortunate story, I believe. <clears throat> Back in 2018, an important controversy sprung up concerning the nature of the Old Testament. A man, a pastor, a megachurch pastor in Atlanta named Andy Stanley, told his people in a sermon that it is time for Christians to unhitch from the Old Testament. Here's what he said in his words. It's the same God, but he was doing two different things. All that differentiating between those things is, is so important. Again, in this sermon I said, now he's speaking of the sermon that he, that he brought this up, he said, it's, he said, hey, it's time that we face the facts and unhitch our faith and our practice from some of these Old Testament values that we can appreciate in their original context, but we really don't have any business dragging them into a modern context. He goes on to say, I am convinced for the sake of this generation and the next generation that we have to rethink our apologetic as Christians. Unless we depend on the Old Testament to prop up our New Testament faith, the better, or the less that we depend upon it, the better because of where we are in the culture, end quote. Now, as you listen to these quotes, Stanley, Andy Stanley seems to be moving toward a heresy called Marcionism. Marcion lived between 85 and 160 A.D., just after the, the apostles passed from the scene. He argued that the Old Testament must be repudiated by the church. He also taught that the Old Testament revealed a creator, a deity that is, who is not even the same God who sent Christ. It follows that he also, because he held that view, he also held a heretical view of Christ. The Old Testament deity, as he called him, was repugnant to Marcion. Therefore, he wanted the Christian church to break away from the Jewish scriptures and the Jewish religion. He taught that the Old Testament revealed a vindictive, law-giving creator, deity, that bears no resemblance to the merciful, redeeming God revealed in Jesus Christ. Now, you may, be, you may realize this, that that was a very critical, a critical battle for the early church. The early church was trying to, to find its footing after the apostles passed from the scene. And so Marcion comes along and says, hey, we need to unhitch from the Old Testament, so to speak. He didn't use those words. He didn't use unhitch. He just said we need to break away from it. Let me teach you a principle that is true today as it was in the early church. Heresy and controversy always drive the church back to the truth. It purifies the church. It causes us to go back and see what is truly real and what is true. What is true. Irenaeus says this. He, he argued. He's one of the most influential church fathers. He argued. Marcion himself divides God in two, saying that one is good and the other is judicial, and in doing so takes God away from both. Marcion, you see, was embarrassed by the Old Testament, and so are many people today. Now, I can't say that Andy Stanley, and I won't say at this point that Andy Stanley has committed this heresy. He's been clear that he believes the God of the Old Testament is the same as the New Testament God, but he's pointed in that direction. You can see where it would only take one or two steps to get there, right? 
I can say that he seems to be embarrassed by the Old Testament and wants to shy away from using it to evangelize the lost. He even, he even cites deconversion stories in which people say they lost their Christian faith when they lost confidence in the Bible, more specifically because of the Old Testament. He states this, If the Bible is the foundation of your faith, here's the problem. It's all or nothing. Christianity becomes a fragile house of cards religion. End quote. Now, I would reply to, to Pastor Stanley, I would reply this. I'd, I'd say that the problem is not making the Bible the foundation of our faith. The problem is defective faith. The problem is our faith that's defective. Obviously, all Christians should be concerned by those who have lost, who have fallen away from the faith. I'm reminded of the former pastor and author, Joshua Harris, who renounced his faith several months ago maybe even a year ago now. If you follow the story of Harris, you see a man who made Christianity more of a series of do's and don'ts than about a relationship with Christ. And since the news of Harris, there have been other prominent people who have made shipwreck of their faith. Back in May of this year, a man named Jonathan Steingard, the former lead singer of a Christian rock band, Hawk Nelson, admitted he no longer believes in God. He describes his deconversion as the unraveling of a sweater he says this his belief in god truly began to unravel when he started challenging different versions of bible stories in his words he says this once i found that i didn't believe the bible was the perfect word of god it didn't take long to realize that i was no longer sure he was there at all end quote Beloved, this is what happens when we reduce the Bible to a collection of stories. By and large, our churches are not teaching biblical theology. Said another way, preachers and teachers are not teaching their people how the stories of the Bible, the stories of the Bible fit into God's plan for His people and how those things really impact us. There's a reason for this, beloved. It's because it's hard work. It's hard work on the part of the preacher, and it's hard work on the part of the listener. It's difficult for both. It takes commitment. We are separated from the word of the uh, world of the Old Testament and, for the, and from the New Testament, and for that matter, the world that is. I'm not taking away from the clarity of the Bible, but we must recognize that growth in the Word of God takes great effort. But according to Stanley... The answer is, Andy Stanley, the answer is to unhitch from what he views as the problem. He offers what he says is a new approach to apologetics, to take the focus off the Bible, especially the Old Testament, and put it on the resurrection. He has said over and over that people don't need to believe the Bible to be Christians. So according to him, why debate the truth of the Bible? That's just a distraction according to him. He says this, the good news is, is the good news is good even if even if none of those Old Testament things actually happened. It does nothing, if they didn't happen, it does nothing to undermine the credibility of our new covenant faith. Brethren, that's not the right direction here. As I stated uh, uh, earlier, <coughs> our true problem is is actually biblical illiteracy. Biblical illiteracy is our problem. We need the Bible. We need the whole Bible, the whole counsel of God to grow as Christians. In the words of A.W. Tozer, he says this, nothing less than the whole Bible can make a whole Christian, end quote. But we shouldn't be surprised, right? You see, the Apostle Paul warned that this would happen. In 2 Timothy 4, 3 and 4, he says this, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting their ears to be tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires, and will turn away, away their ears from the truth, and will turn aside to myths. Beloved, we are multiple generations, multiple generations into teaching our children Bible stories instead of teaching them the foundational truths of the Word of God. 
I'm convinced that this style of teaching, the style, we all are familiar with it, right? That we go into the Sunday school room and we learn Bible stories. We learn about Noah. We learn about Daniel and the lion's den. We learn about all these stories, but we don't learn why they matter. I grew up in the chur- around the church, not in the church, but around the church, in and out of churches, but I never understood the Bible until somebody took me aside and started teaching me the Bible. I'm convinced that that style has crept into the pulpit today, and the preaching in many churches is just Bible stories with modern applications. And there's only so much Daniel and the lion's den applied to modern life in corporate America that we can take. Think about it. That doesn't matter. What matters is what God is doing in this world to save sinners and to redeem this world back to Himself. We, we try to subsist on these Bible stories for our spiritual di- diet, and we wonder why people are falling away from the faith. And to make matters worse, we pawn our children off to teachers and professors who are far more passionate about their worldview than we are. Most of us, for good reason, take seriously our children's education. But we don't take seriously the importance of teaching our children sound doctrine. Then as soon as we possibly can, we send them like lambs to slaughter to atheistic and militaristic professors who can't wait to make a mark on Christian youth. These ravenous wolves prowl the halls of every public university and most private ones, including those who call themselves Christian. And we wonder why they're falling away from the faith. The more prestigious, the more these folks proliferate. Did you know that most of the Ivy League universities, if not all, have Christian backgrounds? They were started as seminaries. And look at them today. Beloved, Andy Stanley's suggestion is antithetical to what the Bible says. It's antithetical to the Apostle Peter's words. He says this, or he, he was given, the, Peter was given a glimpse of the glorified Savior. And yet he proclaimed that we have been given the certainty of God-breathed Scripture. Unhitching from the Scriptures makes us weaker and riper for the, pick, for the picking. I'm reminded of a quote by Ian Murray. He says this, Weak doctrine produces weak lives. Those who turn the, uh, the world upside down for Christ, are always those who are mighty in the Scriptures. Church, I'm telling you, this is an extended explanation of why we're doing this series and why we've done this series. A major battle is raging around us. We can't see this conflict with our eyes, but it thunders nonetheless. This battle is a spiritual one, though it has physical manifestations. We're made, we're, we have been made aware of this war, this spiritual war, though we can't see it with our eyes. We witness the results and the fallout all around us, and you better believe that it's a spiritual battle. And you better believe that it's a, it is all-out war. The broken world that we live in manifests itself. To, manifests it. Manifests it. In the book of Job, you see Job had lost his livestock, his family, and his health. But it, his wasn't just a spiritual struggle. He suffered physically in real time. He endured great pain and difficulty. His friends told him that any man who would endure, who would endure such suffering must have sinned against God. Job's wife even told him to curse God and die. The suffering was real, but... What was behind all that suffering was a spiritual battle, a spiritual war, and we are part of that war whether we like it or not. We know about this battle because because God has given us a glimpse of it in His Word. In Genesis 3-1, we see the beginning of it. When the serpent literally snorted and said to the woman, Has God really said... Has God really said that you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? Beloved, that was a direct attack 
on the Word of God. And he has been, Satan has been leading an assault on God's Word from that very moment. The attack continues to be, has God really said? How can we really be sure what God has said? Can we trust God's words? I find it interesting that Andy Stanley wants to focus on the resurrection instead of the Bible. Without the cross, there would be no resurrection. We could focus on the resurrection, but at some point we have to talk about a bloody cross and a bloody Savior as revealed in the Word of God. And as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.18, though, the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So we can cut the Old Testament out now, but when are we going to cut the cross out? It's interesting in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 19, it says, For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where did that come from? Where did Paul quote that? Isaiah 29, the Old Testament, where God warns Israel of the consequences of her sin. The Jewish leaders had raised up human wisdom above God's wisdom, and it resulted in absolute disaster. And as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, that what happened to Israel is an example written for our instruction. Beloved, we are saved by hearing the word of the cross, the gospel of Jesus Christ, as revealed in God's word. This is the reason we teach the whole counsel of God, the Old and the New Testaments. We fully, we fully realize, I hope you realize, that we will be maligned for doing so even within Christian circles where it has become fashionable to question the Word of God. Has God really said, should we really pay attention to His Word, has become the rallying call in many churches. But beloved, we know that the message of the cross is foolishness. We recognize Paul's words in 2 Timothy 3.12, Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Yet we join him in believing that the sacred writings which are able to give us the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith in Christ Jesus, we believe that. That's 2 Timothy 3.15. We believe that that's where that salvation through faith comes through these writings, the Scripture. And he goes on to say, as we've said many times, all Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching. Beloved, I want you to see that the Bible, the Bible that you hold, is a truly remarkable book. It is our source of truth. Therefore, that's why we've taken the last few weeks to study bibliology, the doctrine of Scripture. Now I want to do a quick review of our series, and I want to give you some applications of these truths. We started six weeks ago by looking first at the canon of Scripture. In that first sermon, we began by establishing what is the, the canon. We saw that the canon of Scripture is, a, is the, the collection of 66 books or documents which are, we believe, to be inspired by God. We saw that these books are self-authenticating because they have the very fingerprints of God on them. They've been breathed, they're the breathed-out words of God. In this sermon, we use the following proposition statement. Here at Grace Bible Church, we maintain that God, the Holy Spirit, inspired the writing of the Old and the New Testaments, including the formation of the canon. We believe that the Holy Spirit has administered the formation of the canon. We assert here at Grace Bible Church that it was God who determined the canon. We believe that, the, that God inspired the words of Scripture and was faithful to providentially preserve them for mankind. As such, we have merely recognized which books or which documents have been inspired and preserved by God. Not to pick on Andy Stanley, but I believe this is where his error begins. He seems to believe that the Bible didn't become the Bible until it was put together in a book. 
which was later. But we believe that the Bible, the words of God, were the, were the words of God as soon as they were penned. Each book was truly the word of God. It wasn't proven true by a council or by an outside authority. We don't sit in authority over the canon. It self-authenticates itself. Since the Bible was breathed out by God, we've seen that in 2 Timothy 3.16, it bears its own mark of authority, dependability, and authenticity. It bears the mark of being God-breathed. Therefore, we, it bears the unmistakable marks of the Holy Spirit. Secondly, we learned that Jesus affirmed the Old Testament Scriptures. In Luke 24, verse 25 through 27, the resurrected Christ began with Moses and with all the prophets and to explain to the disciples the things concerning Himself in all the Scriptures. Then in verse 44 of that same chapter, He says this, these are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And in saying this, he affirmed the Old Testament scriptures, the law, the prophets, and the writings. And amazingly, in Matthew twenty-three thirty-five, he affirmed the very same Old Testament covenant Old Testament canon, that is, the 39 books of the Old Testament that you have in your hands right now, he confirmed that that is the very same Old Testament that he had. Thirdly, Jesus authorized the New Testament Scriptures. Our Lord not only affirmed the Old Testament, but he also promised that he would give additional revelation to his church through his authorized representatives, namely the apostles. In John 14, Jesus said to his disciples in verse 25, he says this, These things I have spoken to you while abiding with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. Now that last line that he would bring to your remembrance all that I said to you is especially significant for the doctrine of canonicity. What did Jesus promise his, his apostles? That the Holy Spirit would be sent to help them remember all things that Jesus had said. Now, I would argue that that is a promise that alludes to 2 Peter 1.21, that, that men were carried along by the Holy Spirit, by the Spirit that they, as they penned the words of Scripture. The second sermon we heard was the inspiration of Scripture. Now, as this study has progressed, we found that inspiration is the key to our understanding of the doctrine of Scripture. For our study of, of inspiration, we actually exposited 1 Peter 1, 16-21. And we used the following proposition statement. In this text, in 1 Peter 1, 16-21, Peter gave three arguments why we as believers must trust the Bible. He asserts first that the, the, the apostles, that is, were not making up fables. In other words, Peter asserts that they did not make up stories regarding all that they saw in Christ's life and ministry. He maintains the truthfulness of the, of the witnesses. Now, as an aside, I said in this sermon that these men would not have suffered and died for a lie. I want to clarify something the youth brought this up to me and i want to make sure that i clarify that obviously people sometimes will die when for something that they believe is true when it's in fact a lie but there is a major difference here the the disciples especially the 12 they did not break ranks the, all of them died for what they said that they believed and what they said that they saw they all suffered for those things Paul confidently asserts this and uses it, uses it as proof for the resurrection. Now, I want you to contrast that, and why I say it's different, I want you to contrast that to the men involved with the Book of Mormon. Most of them, I don't know if you know this, but most of them renounced their Mormon faith and were excommunicated by the end of their lives. They all broke ranks, is the point. 
But with the disciples and with the apostles, that didn't happen. But Peter says that they were made eyewitnesses. Specifically here in 1 Peter, he's referring to the transfiguration of Christ. These men were given a glimpse of the glorified Christ whom, they, whom we will all see at the end of the age. And as, ma- as amazing as that event was, he points to something even greater. God breathed Scripture. He says that, they were, that the apostles and prophets were men moved by the Spirit. They were moved by the Spirit of God as they pen- penned the altogether certain prophetic word which we all possess today. As such, he establishes infallible Scripture as being more reliable than the memories and accounts of the men who witnessed Jesus' ministry. Because they were carried along by the Holy Spirit, as Jesus promised in John 14 and John 16. Ian Lutke then came and he teached or taught the first of four crucial conclusions of this truth that God, God has inspired or breathed out Scripture. He says that Scripture, he taught that Scripture is inerrant. He set us up by asking, Ian set us up by asking two main questions. What do we mean first when we say the Bible is without error? First, we learned that the Bible is without error or is inerrant in its original manuscripts. We acknowledge that there are scribal errors in individual manuscripts. And we also acknowledge trans- translational inaccuracies. Amazingly, I would argue that, these are, that the existence of these is proof of the preserva- preservation of God's inerrant word. You see, we don't possess the original manuscripts. Now let me, let me explain this, and just take a moment, hopefully, to explain it. We do possess, or we possess enough manuscripts. We actually have over 5,800 Greek manuscripts, either full or partial. We, we possess enough manuscripts to be certain of the original text. We can piece these together using what's called textual criticism. Now let me explain textual criticism. Let me explain the process, hopefully very briefly. Just imagine for a moment, that someone important wrote a letter to Grace Bible Church and you wanted to share that letter with other churches. So what you do is is that you take the time and you meticulously copy that letter in your own hand and take it to the other churches to to share that letter with them. So you take that letter, your letter, each one of you take a letter to another church. And when you get there, you give them that letter. And what they do is they copy that letter. And that process happens over and over and over. So we have all these copies of this letter. Then over the ensuing hundreds of years, the original letter is lost. But guess what? We can find thousands of those manuscripts, fragmented or whole. And guess what else we find? You know how we write verses and the things that we write? You know, we'll say as John 1 says or as Matthew 2 says. Well, guess what? The church fathers did that as well. And we have many of those writings. So the the science of textual criticism is the study of how to piece all that evidence together and recreate the original. The way I think of it is is that there's some uh, little man sitting in the corner somewhere and he's pulling all this together, and he's making all these decisions to see what we really believe the original text is. But there's a bunch of those people, and they argue all the time. And by the way, with all this happening, we can be fairly certain, very certain, that is, that we have and we understand what the original says. Now, ask yourself, if we had the original text, what would the charge be? it could be corrupted, right? If we had that original, it could be corrupted. But the original is impossible to corrupt when it exists in thousands of independent manuscripts and fragments. You get the point? Why that's so amazing? 
God's wisdom is shown in how he has preserved his word in a way that cannot be refuted. No, by the way, I said the translations. Well, those the word was translated into other languages. And so we have all those as well. God has miraculously preserved his word through normal means. But we also learn that the Bible is inerrant in the things that it speaks to. The Bible is inerrant in its historical accuracy. And as such, the Bible doesn't guarantee exhaustive comprehensiveness, right? It doesn't, we don't know everything that happened. But what we do know, we know is inerrant, that is true, that's perfect. It's perfect knowledge. The Bible is also inerrant when it speaks to science, even when it doesn't use the modern language of science. The Bible, as an example, speaks of the sun rising. But guess what? We know the sun doesn't rise, that, we, that it doesn't work that way. But guess what? We still say the sun rises and the sun sets. So why would we expect the Bible to say anything different than the, the vernacular that we use? Ian asked a second question. Why should we absolutely believe in biblical inerrancy? Because the Bible itself claims to be perfect. Psalm 19.7, The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. He's also brought up that the Bible stands and falls as a whole. Jesus himself taught in Matthew 5.18 and 19, He says, But truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Thirdly, the Bible reflects its author. Numbers 23, 19 says, God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Titus 1, 1 and 2, Paul writes, Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the faith of those chosen and the knowledge of the truth which is according to godliness. He says this then in verse 2, and the hope of eternal life which God who cannot lie promised long ages ago. So it follows that if God inspired the Word of God, if God inspired the very words of God, then, since He cannot lie, we would expect His Word to be perfect, to be inerrant. As Jesus prayed for His disciples, sanctify them in truth, thy word is truth. This leads us to the next sermon by Joshua Stevens, who preached on the authority of Scripture. It follows that if, God breathed out the word of God, then his word bears his authority. John 12, 48 says this, He who rejects me and does not receive my sayings has one who judges him. Then he says this, The word I spoke is what will judge him in the last day. Clearly, if we don't receive his word, we will be, re- we will be judged by the words of Christ at the day of judgment. Hebrews 4.12 is one of the most sobering verses in the entire Bible. It says this, For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Then it says in verse 13, And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to, him, to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. This leads us to the last sermon of the series preached by Philip Sanders on the clarity and sufficiency of Scripture. Clarity of Scripture, the Bible is a plain book and is intelligible by common people. Beloved, we don't need a pope or a church to tell us what it says. You and I can read the Word of God and we can understand it. Now, I didn't say that it doesn't take hard work. It by all means takes hard work, but you and I can read the Word of God in plain language and we can understand it. It's funny, as Mark Twain famously quipped, he says this, most people are bothered by those passages of Scripture they don't understand, but the passages that bother me are those I do understand. End quote. Beloved, it follows that Scripture is clear because it has been inspired by God. When When Scripture speaks, God speaks. And according to Paul in 1 Corinthians 14, God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. This clarity of Scripture points to the character of God. He is a 
an effective communicator who does not lie. His word goes forth with great clarity and can be understood by all people. As such, the Bible was written to all types. Deuteronomy 30. For this commandment which I command to you today is not too difficult, nor is it out of reach. It is not in heaven that you should say, who will go up to heaven for us to get it and make us hear it, that we observe it. What he's saying is, is that it's here. It's, it's been given to us. It's clear. This leads us to the last implication that we heard was the sufficiency of Scripture. Beloved, the world doubts and mocks the Word of God. The world believes that we, uh, we need <clears throat> more. We need more. We need more science or we need more whatever. Uh, we need more than what God has revealed in His Word. The question is, do we really need more or do we have enough? Can a book written 2,000 years ago be sufficient for our modern situation? Beloved, the issues and problems of the human heart have not changed from the time the Bible was written. The Bible is con comprehensive and it addresses all that we need. We read this earlier in 1 Peter 1.3, His divine power has granted us everything pertaining to life and godliness. The, the Scriptures are sufficient. Read Psalm 19, 7-9 if you get the moment. They're sufficient. They're complete. They're perfect. They're fully capable. They're competent to do all that we need. It's informative that 2 Timothy 3.16 where Paul says that the Scriptures are profitable for teaching and for reproof and so on. He says that he says this, that he says these things and they are his last recorded words. Dying men, beloved, don't usually waste breath on things that don't matter, right? In effect, and, and what we effectively have is Paul's dying words. He points to Scripture as being sufficient. It's all we need. Now, quickly, considering all that we've learned during these past few weeks, there are four clear applications that, I, that I, we can take directly from our study. First, as a Christian, as a believer, you must desire the Word of God. As believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, let me say it this way, if you are a believer in Christ, you will have desire. It follows that you will have a desire for His Word. If you don't, then you need to question. You need to examine yourself. We've established that the Bible is God-breathed. Uh, the spirit breathe therefore the the believer finds life there life life is in the breath right that the the life we find life in the the the, the word of god just as cpr gives the dying the breath of life scripture is the breath of god which breathes life into the believer beloved we find life there because we find christ there christ who's the embodiment of all truth in John 8, I won't read it, John 8, 31, 32, He promises that, if, that the, the truth will set us free. If we continue in His, in His Word, that it, the truth will set us free. Beloved, the freest man in the world is one who has completely given himself to the truths of God's Word. He promises if we continue in His Word, we are truly His disciples and we can know the truth. Especially important to understand this because after experiencing slavery to sin, the freedom we experience in knowing the truth and in knowing Christ is sweeter than any other thing. And this can be tied together with knowing His Word. Just listen to the psalmist in Psalm 19. He says that in Psalm 19, verse 9, the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. Then he says in verse 10, uh, some incredible words, they are more desirable than gold. Yes, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. But not only must we desire God's Word, we must delight in God's Word. A little nuance of difference. We must make it our delight. We must find our 
pleasure and our happiness in the promises of God. We'll never, we'll never, beloved, find our happiness in the vain things of this world. All the toys of the world will not guarantee happiness. I would venture to say that the wealthiest men are by and large the most miserable. Why do you think that Charles Dickens' book, A Christmas Carol, is as popular today as it was, was when it was written 170 years ago? It's because we identify with that rich old miser who exemplifies what we know about the, to be true about the pursuit of riches. You see, true blessing and true delight come from a relationship with your Maker, which can only be deepened by meditating on His Word. Again, let's tie this together to Scripture. Just listen to Psalm 1. It says, How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But what? His delight. His delight is in the law of the Lord. And in His law, He meditates day and night. You want to be like a tree firmly planted by the streams of water. You want to bear fruit in your life. You will abide in the Word of God. You will find blessings there. You will be granted true prosperity. The path to these blessings, according to the psalmist, begins with delighting in the Word of God, the law of the Lord. Third, so we must desire the Word of God. We must delight in the Word of God. Third, we must defer to the Word of God. Beloved, God's Word is authoritative and sufficient. It's authoritative because the Bible is uh, God-breathed. Now here's an interesting thought exercise. If, if an alien from another universe sent us a book revealing himself, the world would be clamoring for that book, would it not? Be clamoring for that. That book would be worth billions. It would be the most sought-after words on the planet if an alien wrote us a letter. The printing presses wouldn't be able to keep up with it. Why? Because we imagine that that alien has knowledge which can help better our lives. Think about it. Well, our Creator has chosen to reveal Himself in a book. Because He is our Creator, He is His book then is authoritative. His book is the standard by which we must live. <coughs> the Word of God, according to Elizabeth Elliot, she says this, The Word of God I think of as a straight edge, which shows up our own crookedness. We can't really tell how crooked our thinking is until we line it up with the straight edge of Scripture. End quote. Proverbs 1.7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Church, the Word of God... The Logos was made flesh and dwelt among us. He revealed Himself to a select few in, who were living in those days. But to the rest of us, He has chosen to reveal Himself in a book, on the, wor the words on a page, the Bible. And because it is His revelation of us, it is sufficient not only to give us the wisdom to live, but tells us how we can be with Him for eternity. And really, this is the point. The Bible shows us the way to heaven. The Bible reveals a bloody Savior who died on a Roman cross at the hands of godless men as the perfect sacrifice for our sin. He is the Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world. The Bible displays a risen and glorified Savior who was raised up and seated in the heavenlies. The Bible tells us that those who believe in the sin-atoning death uh, on the cross of, of our Lord Jesus Christ will also be raised up and seated with Him in the heavenly places. That's, the Bible's the only place that reveals these things. <laughs> if it was an alien book, we'd be clamoring for it. Couldn't print enough copies. John Wesley says this, I want to know one thing, the way to heaven how to land happy uh, or safe on that happy shore. God has condescended to teach the way. For this very end, He came from heaven, and He has written it down in a book. Oh, give me that book. At any price, give me the book of God. I have it. Here is the knowledge enough for me. Let me be a man of one book. End quote. Fourth, and we'll end here. 
It's back where we started. We must defend the Word of God. We must defend the Word of God. Unfortunately, defend it within the church, right? Andy Stanley would have us focus on something else other than the Word of God. With all due respect, he is wrong. At the end of his life, the Apostle Paul found himself in chains. He had been beaten. He had been deserted by all those whom he loved. In 2 Timothy 4.16, he says that my first defense, no one supported me, but all deserted me. But despite all that, Paul didn't say, you know, preaching the Bible doesn't work in this culture. He didn't say that. Andy Stanley, if he were standing here today, I would tell him, Paul didn't say that we need to unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament. You know what he did say? I remind you, these are his final words that we have, the words of a dying man. He says this in 2 Timothy 4.1, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by His appearing and His kingdom, preach the Word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instructions. And instruction. And he goes on to say this. And if this isn't applicable to what I'm talking about, I don't know what is. He says this. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside the myths Beloved, we need more Bible, not less. We need more. You need more. I pray that you will desire the Word of God. I pray that you will delight in the Word of God. I pray that you would defer to the Word of God. And I pray that you would defend it. Let us pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you this day that you have given us your word, a pure word, it's authoritative, it's clear, it's sufficient, it's sweeter than sweeter than honey. Father, we wouldn't trade it for anything. We look forward to the day when, when all these things come to fruition and we can live forever with you. In Christ's name, amen.